And so we're in Ezekiel chapter 20 this morning. It's a long chapter. We'll probably get two or three sermons out of it. We're starting in verse 1. We're going to verse 11. This is uh, Ezekiel telling us about what God has revealed to him and thus what he shared with God's people, Israel, as they were in exile, or at this point as most of them were still anticipating heading into exile. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of Yahweh, of the Lord, and sat before me. And the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob. Making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes, made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. You might have noticed as we've been going through this book that Ezekiel likes to move between different modes of communication, different kinds of talking or illustrating his point. We've seen retelling of history, which we see again here today. We've also seen proverbs. We've seen riddles. We've seen parables. In the last chapter, 19, we saw songs of lament. And after the last five chapters now of mostly image-based metaphorical speech, Ezekiel returns to the language of just straightforward historical narrative. The change begins with this interaction between the prophet and his audience. And apparently what had happened is that the elders of Israel, from whom we've heard before, more on that later, they, they come to Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord, to ask what God would have us do? What is it that God wants? And God's response is pretty shocking. In verse 3, Speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? You can detect a bit of a rhetorical question there. As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. In other words, I don't want to listen to anything you have to say. 
In this chapter, Ezekiel starts, as I said, narrating the history of God's people. And the history is not really where we would put the focus when we, uh, modern Westerners, narrate history. When we tell the story of history, we tend to focus on who's in charge and what they did, or the kind of what great sorts of accomplishments happen. And God has done that in other parts of the Bible. But here, the history is mainly one of sin and idolatry. I'll show you that again in just a moment. Ezekiel is called to confront the elders, verse 4, with some bad news. Let them know the abominations of their fathers. That's what Ezekiel wants to talk to the elders about. Now, chapter 20 is quite long. As I said, we'll probably get two or three sermons out of it. What happens in chapter 20 is that Ezekiel narrates three generations of Israel's history. And in each of those generations, they all have something in common, and it's not good. In this case, the charge leveled against the elders is secret idolatry. Things that they set before their eyes. Did you catch that when I was reading the text a moment ago? Verse 7, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on. What a, what a stunning way to put idolatry and sin. So think about having a feast, right? You plan it all out. You set the food before you, and if you're a good host, you do something that I don't understand and struggle to care about, and that is presentation, right? My, my general approach is like the food's all going to look the same when it gets to about right here, and so I really, I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time on presentation. I don't get it. Uh, but but I, I must admit, some people can make food look really pretty right before you make it disappear, And so it is that God says, the things that you are setting before your eyes to feast on, to feast on. Idolatry and eyesight have this ongoing kind of connectional theme in the Bible that the things that you're looking at, gazing at, are the things that own your heart, right? It's why, and and this is not necessarily idolatry, but like it's why you might keep a picture of your wife in your wallet, because, and again, that's not an example of idolatry, but why? Because, because your heart delights to look at her, right? And so that's, that's an example of, uh, in a sort of reduced form, what idolatry is, is a constant, continual feasting of the eyes on that which already actually owns your heart and you think is beautiful, wonderful, lovely, just all, the, all those sorts of things. Now, secret idolatry we've seen before, actually. In fact, if you'll go back to Ezekiel chapter 8, right, just a a few pages back or a few chapters to your left, if you like. In Ezekiel chapter 8, you see God, again, addressing the elders, and especially in verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures for they say the Lord does not see us so again if you imagine the original audience of Ezekiel as soon as he brings up elders it is good and right for you to connect that to the other times he's been talking about the elders the leaders the spiritual leaders of the community he brings them up again in chapter 14 verses 1 through 5 
certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. My, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it's supposed to. Chapter 14 starts the same way as chapter 20. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken the idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces, before their eyes. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? That sounds familiar. Same kind of rhetorical question. Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, appearance of spiritual uh, growth, appearance of spiritual discipline, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with, carrying the multitude of his idols in his heart. Secret idolatry is the sin that Ezekiel's been, you could say, working on in them and at them for the last few chapters. Whenever the elders are brought up, this is the problem. So we're already anticipating that's where he's going. This is addressed to the elders. So God is, in a sense, taking their sin all the way back to Numbers chapter 11, when you have some of the first elders of Israel selected by God, the very ones who once lead the people. And by the way, in Numbers 11, they receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now they're the ones leading the people in idolatry. Now why does God say, let them know? If you go back to chapter 20. Let them know, verse 4. Let them know the abominations of their fathers. Let them know the abominations of their fathers. Why does God tell Ezekiel, or any other prophet for that matter, to let people know something? Now, don't overthink this. If God says, let them know something, it's probably because they forgot something. They forgot that they are the latest inheritors of a long line of both God's promises and generations and generations of fathers who rejected those promises. They are carrying on the same God defiance, the same God forgetfulness of their ancestors. Both, by the way, their ancestors of blood, so they're, 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 you might say, physical fathers, and the, the, uh, their ancestors spiritually, the elders of Israel before them. And this is a biblical principle on display here for us that for most modern Westerners is really hard to understand. And that is that spiritual forgetfulness is sinful and demands repentance. We, we forget so easily that our, our sin and even our spiritual forgetfulness that puts us at distance from God makes us fit for hell. We, I mean, we forget the power of Almighty God that He can heal. We forget the ways in which He's called us to worship. We forget the holiness of God and, and that causes us to be careless in how we speak of Him. How we sing of Him. We, we are so prone to forget. In fact, remember, remember there's only one commandment of all the Ten Commandments that begins with remember. It's about the importance of one day for gathered worship and intentional rest. And it is the one we most consistently forget. Sometimes we act like if we show up for worship, we've really done God a favor. <laughs> we ought to be congratulated. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Sabbath and rest and worship are in the rest of chapter 20 beyond the scope of our passage this morning. The point so far 
is that God is narrating Israel's history to remind them of something. Why? Because they forget. Verse 5, if you'll join me there. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am... I am, right? That's what Yahweh means. I am, I am your God. It is hard for me to sufficiently communicate to you the weight of the drama in this statement. At this point in Israel's history, if you will forgive me for perhaps sounding like I'm speaking lightly of the text, at this point in Israel's history, Israel is like God's abusive ex. Right? That, I mean, that is, that is almost the, the, the realm into which we're, we're, we're getting. That God is saying, I gave you all this. I joined you to myself by covenant vows, and you betrayed me. Spiritual adultery is the language that's been used in earlier texts uh, in, this, in, in this book, in Ezekiel. And here God is saying, I made a covenant vow with you. I gave you myself. If that were not enough, I gave you something else. Verse 6. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. In other words, if that wasn't enough to give you myself, I gave you a home. I gave you provision. I gave you everything that you would need. And this is something we must always remember, dear saints, because if you've been a Christian for a while... You, uh, a temptation that often comes along to those who've been Christians for a long time is that you, you get tempted to think that the Christian life is mainly a matter of intellectual discovery by your own strength. Let me finish the whole thought here. The temptation is, especially for seasoned saints, that, you, that, that, that the Christian life is like a knowledge quest, Right? And it's your job to uncover as much download input as you can. And if you think that way for for long enough, you're going to start getting bored. Because you're going to start thinking, I have heard all of this before. I mean, it stands to reason. If, if, If the Christian life is a matter of knowledge, and primarily God reveals Himself in a book... Right? Well, if you read the book for long enough, you start getting bored with the book. It's, it, that's a, the, the temptation. And then you find yourself falling in love with everything that gives you the knowledge outside of the book. The latest trend, the latest historical, theological, new book, new teaching, new conspiracy theory that dispenses with 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit's work and reveals the real story to you and you alone. It is deeply poisonous, but it's also deeply seductive. I don't think we talk about that enough. It's a, it's a very seductive pursuit. And the simple, ordinary worship of God by His Word and His sacrament will cease to enthrall your heart, cease to satisfy you. And consequently, in your evangelism, it will not satisfy the hearts of your neighbors or your family either. And maybe, you know, or maybe you just won't work to evangelize at all because your heart is not in love with God. It's in love with the individual stack and in, in the individual pursuit. Knowing God is not a matter of knowledge acquisition. If you, if you attend Neil Barham's catechism class, you know he likes to start class by pleading with the Lord to deliver us from 
mere education. Yes, <laughs> that's because growth in grace is a matter of God's self-revelation in His Word, by His Spirit, and with His people. Okay? Not in isolation. How do I know that? Look at the text. Look at the text. What is the revelation of God here in chapter 20? Let's look at it. Verse 5. On the day when I chose you, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them. That's revelation. I swore to them, covenant promise. I am the Lord your God. That's his presence. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt and into a land. That's community. Right? So God says, I'm giving you my, rep, my, my words. Well, first, I'm, I'm setting on you my covenant love, election. And then he says, I'm giving to you my words, myself, and now here's a land. Go be this, this community, dare I say it, this church together. You are a people, not a bunch of isolated individuals in little cubicles. Why? Well, the Lord here says, because I made you a promise. I made you an oath. I made you a vow. I mean, if you like, I, I made you a wedding vow or, or maybe another way of... Uh, well, no, that is the way I wanted to put it. I made you a promise, but also I gave you a people. I gave you a community. I gave you, uh, we, we would call it a church family. What were these people called to? Verse 7. I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. This was, this was God's covenant. This was his marriage vows, if you like. With Israel, I will be your God, you will be my people. In the promised land, you will not be a people of idols. It's why when you seek to become a member of this church, our elders are going to ask you some questions about your faith. That is not because we want to be the high and mighty church of theological exams. It's not so we can look around at all the other churches in Alexandria and say, thank you, Lord, for not making us like those other places full of dummies. Thank you for laughing. If you didn't laugh, <laughs> is he serious? Yes. Why, why ask questions of people? Why, why you know, talk and, and provoke conversation and stuff like that? It is because, here, here's like the secret, Nobody has to trick you into talking about what you already love. Right? Nobody has to trick you into talking about what you already love. And so part of our love for you as elders is to ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus? Because if you say you do, and then still come to Him carrying your idols, the things you actually love, the Lord is not fooled. God gives them promises. Notice in the text, He moves first. It's not, God does not say, I'm going to wait until you are properly cleaned up and then I will come to you. No, He comes to them when they're nobodies, worthless, helpless, hopeless, and He gives them promises. But what happens? Verse 8, They rebelled against Me and were not willing to listen to Me. None of them cast away the detestable things. Their eyes feasted on the stuff they actually loved. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Again, remember, Ezekiel is reciting this history. And what you're going to see is he keeps coming back to the same point through uh, chapter 20. 
The big problem is idolatry, not just idolatry, but idolatry you think is hidden and you think is secret. Right? God says, I gave them my words and they forgot them. Go back and remind them. And this is the way of sin. First, we forget. And if forgetfulness goes untreated, it eventually turns into rebellion. Some of you are right now in a place where you have not rejected God. You've just started living as though He doesn't exist. You're forgetting. R.C. Sproul called it practical atheism. It's not that you are self-consciously self-identifying as an atheist. It is that if you were an atheist, not a whole lot would be different in your life. You just live as though God doesn't matter. So if you get one thing out of the sermon this morning, get this. We have a real cool like little note section in your, your bulletin. You can write it down, man. Take it home. Put it on the fridge. If you get one thing out of the sermon, get this. The greatest threat to your faith is not persecution. It is hidden sin. Okay? The greatest threat to Israel's faith was not, as far as the Lord is concerned, the pain of exile. It was hidden idolatry. Somewhere in the modern age, for example, we stopped believing in the necessity of confession of sin that unmasks us. We still talk like we believe it, but we start treating it as though it's only something we did in private. You know what's, mm, as Bob Vincent would say, leaving preaching, going to meddling, you know what's utterly foreign to church history? And that is confess, uh, con- confessing your sins in private all the time. I'm not saying that confessing your sins to God in a private place where no one can hear you but the Lord is bad. I'm saying that thinking of confession of sin mainly as a private act, as a private task, is foreign to most of Christian practice throughout history. Confession of sin for most of church history has usually meant looking another human being in the eye and saying, I've sinned, here's how. Later on, that gets morphed and twisted and abused into a Roman practice of sitting in a box and confessing to a priest who gives you homework, makeup work to do. And that's, that's wrong. I am not endorsing that or saying that's good. But what we did, I think, is we threw out the whole practice, in part because I think uh, individualism, and we said, the answer is just to confess all your sins in private. Where no one can confront you? Where, where no brother or sister can actually help you? Where no one will learn, here's the big one, where no one will learn the ways that you lie to yourself and then try to like defend you from that. Now, if you are married, you already have some sense of this. Because before you were married, you were still a wretched sinner, but pretty much nobody knew. And when you're married, you're still a wretched sinner, but now somebody knows. Uh, To a point, I mean, over time, husbands and wives can still get pretty good at hiding from each other, but I think too much of too much of private in my room, my own confession, by myself, is really just fig leaves. Like, we, we don't want someone else to see our nakedness, spiritually speaking. That's why, I mean, that, that's why, for, I mean, in a lot of, like, evangelical churches today, we don't confess our sins anymore. Like, public confession of sin is gone. 
from a lot of, a lot of church services. And then it, it's disappeared even from like smaller groups and Bible studies, even in, even in churches where we claim to, to prize authenticity. What authenticity sometimes means, if we're honest, is everyone gather around me while I complain about how miserable my life is, how unhappy my husband makes me, how grumpy my wife is, how worthless my children are, how unreasonable my boss is, and that's me being authentic. And don't you dare confront me about my bitterness or my ingratitude or my hatred. <laughs> I think I heard somebody say some version of amen. This is the sort of thing I want to keep far from our fellowship. Far from our men's breakfast. I've, I've told brothers at our men's breakfast, if you're here mainly to confess your wife's sins, I think you might be better staying in bed because then at least you won't be sinning. And as our women's groups come back to life and, and these Bible studies begin, my dear sisters, my challenge is the same to you. If the purpose of a women's group is mainly to slander your husbands, it would be better that you did not meet than provide an opportunity for protected sin. So, so real authenticity, though, if we want to know real authenticity, is let me tell you about the secret sin that nobody knows. The protected sin that I don't like to talk about that is slowly killing my soul, that is slowly alienating me from my wife, that is slowly causing me to despise and disrespect my husband, that is slowly sowing bitterness between me and my children, that is distancing me from my Christian friends, that's driving me further and further into isolation where my only companions are bodies and faces and words on a screen. Let me tell you about it before it ruins me. And then I need you to look me in the eye and tell me that I'm forgiven by the God who draws near to the contrite in heart. If you want authenticity, dear saints, I, I suggest you start there. Because what secret sin does is, the best way I can put it, is it dulls your spiritual senses. A kind of spiritual numbness can set in. So when Christians say, you might have heard Christians say, sin separates you from God, and that's true. Part of what we mean by that is that persistent sin, especially the guarded secret kind, makes God seem smaller, less relevant, less powerful, less loving, less concerned for you. It produces a kind of spiritual numbness. And so what does God say? What, is God, what sort of action does God take? He says, None of them would cast away the idols. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them, spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But, here's the reason, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, and in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. The good news is that God will not allow His name, His reputation, His glory to be mocked. The bad news for sinners is that God will not allow His name and His reputation and His glory to be mocked. In other words, our, uh, to the extent that we are rebelling against God and keeping it to ourselves, it will be exposed and found out because the Lord is in the Scriptures in the best sort of way. Perhaps this is a whole other sermon. But the Lord is obsessed with His own glory. And that's good news because if He's not, there's no reason that you should be. He is, he is committed 
to making sure that all of the rumors about His glory and holiness and love are absolutely true. That is what the Lord is committed to. To making sure you know that all the rumors about His gospel and His salvation and His mercy for you are true. And whatever gets in the way of that, He means to bring it into. Israel can never simply choose to be like the nations and and thus remove themselves from God's authority. Israel can choose to live in light of what God has given them. Or she can rebel and face the consequences of death. Ian Duguid, uh, a a biblical scholar, comments that uh, our generation needs people within their covenant community who are prophetically willing to call a spade a spade, to call sin sin, to speak of death and hell and the judgment to come. We need to confront the socially acceptable idols of comfort and success and career progress, which many attempt to combine with a commitment to Christ, as well as the more blatantly pagan idolatries. And so, for the sake of time, what I want to ask you this morning is something that for most of us is almost like beyond the realm of what we ordinarily think about. Because what happens when you have secret sin that you're protecting and guarding is it works like a kind of slow poison in your spirit. And so a question that I want to put to you is what would it be like to live a life free of the secrets that keep you in fear? What would it be like to live a life free from the bitterness that poisons your most meaningful relationships? What would it be like to actually be fully known and still loved? Can you even bear the thought of losing the fig leaves? This is the the unmitigated, but also, if we're honest, kind of unbearable glory of the gospel. That Jesus Christ comes to forgive you of all of your sins, and all means all, and that's all, all means. And that is, there's real rest there, real, actual rest from the consuming dread of being uncovered. And it seems to me that, I, 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 I just wonder sometimes, do we, do we just barely know the outskirts of this rest, this freedom? It is part of the reason that every Sunday we try to have an elder up here for prayer. So that someone is available to you and you can come and say, here are the fig leaves. Tired of hiding. Here's the hidden sin that's destroying me. And before I dare approach the Lord at His table, I need to give up my carefully curated protection of my sin for the sake of His name. In response to that confession, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I've saved you a seat at my table. I've saved you a seat at the table. Come home, son. Come home and know my rest. This is the rest to which He invites all of us to know what it means to be free from that burden. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Our Father, I pray that you would revive our hearts this morning. Give us, as it says in your word, the ability to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Give us a new renewed ability. First to see, take away our blindness, Lord. To see the ugliness of sin. That we might very clearly see, oh, that's what I've been forgiven of. That's what I've been set free from. That's what is never to, to touch me or threaten me again. And so, Lord, grant that this freedom of the gospel would be spread abroad, pushed into the corners of this congregation. That this would be a place of free people, set free from the slavery of sin and from secret sin. In other words, send forth your spirit, Lord, that we would be renewed, that we would be filled. We would rejoice in the glory of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name.